From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, our focus is back on the heated race in the 3rd Congressional District, which includes Grand Junction and Pueblo. We've spoken with the Democrat running for the U.S. House. The Republican, Lauren Boebert, has declined our requests for an interview, so we'll give you a look at her stances on some of the region's most pressing issues, like health care and energy. Then, students at the state's largest university must continue to isolate perspective today on what it will take for college campuses to get the virus under control. Plus, a socialite who wanted Denver to be relevant. She made a point to say, you think of us as this wild west town where buffalo roam the streets, and this is so not the case. We are a cosmopolitan city. The queen of Denver. I give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic and our elections. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's vast third congressional district is a big battleground this election. The district covers western Colorado and curves around to take in Alamosa and Pueblo. On the Republican side, this House race features Lauren Boebert of Silt, a restaurateur and gun rights activist who touts her endorsement by President Trump. This is from a campaign ad. I'm Lauren Boebert. A small business owner, a mom, a Coloradan fed up with far-left Washington politicians. AOC, Nancy Pelosi, they'll take away our Second Amendment rights. They'll replace our health insurance with socialized medicine. Not on my watch. I'll keep government bureaucrats off our backs. I'll fight for good-paying jobs. I'll fight for Last week, we heard in depth from Boebert's opponent, Democrat Diane Mitch Bush of Steamboat Springs. Boebert's campaign has so far declined our invitation for an interview, which remains open. For now, we'll get a sense of Boebert's campaign and her positions from Colorado Matters producer Michelle P. Fulcher, who has been following this race. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Ryan. Tell us a little bit more about Lauren Boebert. So she's probably best known as the owner of a place called Shooter's Grill in Rifle, where the servers carry guns as they are waiting on folks. This spring, she defied a public health order and offered dine-in service uh, when it was supposed to be just takeout and curbside for the pandemic. She said at the time she had to stay in business and there was economic suicide going on. What about her political experience? First time running for office, she beat a five-term congressman, Scott Tipton, in the primary. It was probably the biggest surprise of the campaign season in Colorado so far. Uh, She started to emerge politically just in the last couple of years. She drove to a rally in Aurora last year where Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke was speaking, challenged him very strongly on his gun control positions. She backed the failed recall of Governor Polis And she's collected a lot of signatures for a ballot initiative that deals with the popular vote. What style of campaign is Boebert running? 
I think we could call it an outspoken one, as you might have picked up there in the ad. She's been known, for instance, to use the phrase left-wing lunatics. I spoke with a professor at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. His name is Justin Golub. He teaches political science. And I asked him how Boebert is positioning herself in this race. If you look at Lauren Boebert's trajectory, it looks very similar to Donald Trump's in 2016. Uh, she is a strong supporter of the president. She's talking about her background, especially as a business owner and a job creator. She is uh, sending similar rhetoric around um, issues like socialism. So I would say there you're going to see an intersection of interests uh, from the voters who will support Trump will likely also support Lauren Boebert. Beyond Trump voters, who does Boebert have to convince to win this race? So in the third congressional district, the biggest block of voters is unaffiliated, followed by Republicans, then Democrats. Trump won this district by 12 percentage points in 2016. Oh. So you can say conservative, obviously. Yeah, but those unaffiliated would be key. They will tell us the tale, I think. The other thing to keep in mind with this district is that it covers 50,000 square miles. So either candidate's going to have a lot of very different people with very different interests to persuade. There are folks in small ranching towns, in ski resorts. There's a growing recreation industry, renewable energy, fossil fuel energy. Golub said it's a lot for any congressperson to try and represent. Yeah. Again, Boebert's campaign has declined an interview with us, but Colorado Matters is not alone in being turned down. She declined a request from the Denver Post, for example. Our invitation remains open. I will say that Boebert did meet with the editorial board of the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel, and they said she stonewalled them. Right. Let's talk a bit about what we do and don't know when it comes to Boebert's stance on some key issues, starting with health care. This issue is really big on the Western Slope, Ryan. They have the highest health insurance premiums in the state, among the highest in the country. Bobert says she would keep insurance for pre-existing conditions. She wants health care to be affordable and portable. What her website doesn't say is how she would do that. Mm. How do you cover sick people if you don't have enough healthy people in the pool is really the question. Something that the Affordable Care Act tried to address. Exactly, Obamacare. And that's really the heart of this debate now. In the primary, Boebert criticized Congressman Tipton, saying he didn't do enough to get rid of Obamacare. Now we have a Supreme Court lawsuit that wants to overturn Obamacare. We asked Boebert's folks for a position, a specific position on whether she supported that lawsuit. We got a statement, but not a really specific answer. Quote, the appealing aspects of Obamacare, such as coverage for pre-existing conditions, are important tenets of any policy. But there are aspects that many people don't agree with, such as higher rates, less choice, and forcing specific coverage on people. And then I understand she just this week said something more specific. Right. On Wednesday, Westward, which is a newspaper in Denver, uh, reported that Boebert wants to dump the ACA. She told them one possible substitute would be a package by a congressman in Texas named Chip Roy. She said the key there is it has to cover pre-existing conditions. The ACA, obviously a big aspect of this. Any other key points there, though? 
You ought to mention Medicare for All, which also comes up a good deal. Boebert opposes it, and with the help of national Republicans, she's saying that Mitch Bush is not being straight with voters here. Her Democratic opponents. Uh, Say more about that. A little background here. When you spoke with Mitch Bush, she told you that she opposes Medicare for All. That's a different stance than she took in 2018. She told you it's different this time because the bill does away with private insurance, and she doesn't want to do that. I know many people who like their employer's health insurance. There are other people who are now unemployed because of COVID who have no other choice but the exchange or Medicaid. And so that's why I think the current Medicare for All bill is not helpful. It would eliminate private insurance. But Republicans point out that that Medicare for All bill two years ago did indeed do away with private insurance. Quoting from that bill, it is unlawful for a private health insurer to sell coverage that duplicates the benefits provided under the act. Okay, so a point of contention in this race, and we actually reached back out to Mitch Bush's campaign for clarification. Right, and her communications director, Caleb Cade, came back with a statement that does not address what the GOP says is the change in her position. The statement just reiterates, Diane doesn't support the elimination of private health insurance. Another big set of issues in this third congressional district, energy and the environment. The district has traditionally relied heavily on fossil fuel production. It's moving now towards a variety of other industries, including renewables. What has Boebert said on those topics? Well, Bobert's husband, Jason, works in the oil and gas industry. She's described herself as pro-energy. Her contract with Colorado, that's a one-page statement of position she has on her website, says energy independence is critical to our national defense and economic security. I support an all-of-the-above strategy where the government does not choose winners and losers. Drill, baby, drill add new nuclear technology to the mix as a clean and efficient energy source. On that idea of government choosing the winners and the losers, she's referring there to subsidies. And as we know, fossil fuels get subsidies, so does renewable energy. Lauren Boebert opposes the Green New Deal, Michelle. Right, strongly. She uses that in health care to talk about the Democrats being socialists, as she sees it. And maybe a little bit more insight here. Boebert is a big fan of social media. When Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden posted a while back that climate change is an existential threat, she popped right back. She said, what's your climate change solution that doesn't include taxation and socialism? Oh, wait. On the Green New Deal, Boebert and Diane Mitch Bush actually come to the same conclusion. They're both against it, but for different reasons. And you can hear my conversation with the Democrat Mitch Bush at CPR.org. An area where Boebert has faced some criticism has to do with the QAnon conspiracy theory, which claims President Trump is waging a secret campaign against an international child trafficking ring run by leading Democrats and movie stars. The U.S. House just voted to condemn this fabrication with bipartisan support. But what's going on there with Lauren Boebert. So during the primary, Boebert went on a show that you can describe as QAnon friendly, and she was asked by a listener what she thought of this theory. And she said, I hope it's real. 
And she went on to say, if it is, it only means that America is getting stronger and better and people are returning to conservative values. And that's what I'm for. So there's been a drumbeat that's continued about this throughout the campaign. Boebert now says that she is not a supporter of QAnon. She told Fox 31 in July, QAnon is a lot of things to different people. I was very vague in what I said before. I'm not into conspiracies. I'm into freedom and the Constitution of the United States of America. Michelle, thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Colorado Matters producer Michelle B. Fulcher is following the U.S. House race in the 3rd Congressional District. Republican Lauren Boebert of Silt is running against Democrat Diane Mitch Bush of Steamboat Springs. College campuses continue to struggle in the pandemic. CSU in Fort Collins has now seen one of the state's largest outbreaks with 375 cases. Meanwhile, CU Boulder announced a return to in-person classes next week as after a temporary shift to remote learning. Well, two members of the NPR education team are in Colorado on a stop on a national road trip to see how colleges are coping. So let's welcome reporters Alyssa Nadwarney and senior producer Lauren McGaughy. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you for having us. Uh, Lauren, what specifically did you want to check out in Colorado on this road trip? Well, we wanted to see a lot of things, but the main thing that we kind of came to see was the way that they, the, that the certain schools are testing for um, COVID in the wastewater. So whatever, you know, comes from dormitories, it's a really good way to get a sense of what the population in a certain dorm um, is dealing with in terms of, of COVID. And so we've actually seen now two different schools um, testing that in very different ways. One who, you know, CSU has already been doing this program all semester and one who's just trying to get it off the ground now. The idea being that what is in wastewater can actually be a way to detect the presence of the virus. That's correct. And you can kind of detect it um, a little bit earlier than you would detect um, respiratory systems symptoms. Fascinating. And uh, Alyssa, what were you eager to see in Colorado? Well, you know, we've been on the road now since August, and we've been to about more than a dozen campuses. And one of the things we've noticed is just no campus is the same, right? Every campus is approaching this reopening differently. So part of the mission of our road trip is to see that, you know, what is happening on campus. And Testing has been a major focus for us because it's so different at every school. And, you know, that's because, of course, there has been no real federal guidance on how to do this. Um, So one thing, as Lauren said, that's emerging is this wastewater um, uh, option. And it's so much cheaper, you know, of course, than than mass testing with the PCR, with the navel swab. Um, And so, yeah, we wanted to see it in action here. It's fascinating, Alyssa. You reported fully two-thirds of colleges doing in-person learning either have no clear testing plan or only test students who are at risk. Uh, What does that mean? Like, who gets priority among the students and the staff, and what are the holes in that? Yeah. Well, so, yeah, the, the biggest thing we've seen is a lot of schools just doing that symptomatic testing. And there's two main reasons for that, of course. One is the cost, 
we still don't really have a cheap, fast test. That's a national problem. That's not a college problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, universities are cash strapped right now across the board. This is not a good financial situation. So the CDC essentially this summer kind of gave colleges a bit of a pass because they didn't recommend widespread testing. Um, in fact, they didn't recommend asymptomatic testing, despite the fact that we know 40% or more, you know, when they're positive, they don't have symptoms. So I think the real risk here is that we don't really know what's happening on college campuses if we're not widely testing. You mentioned cash-strapped schools. And I wonder, Lauren McGaughy, to what extent finances are driving colleges and universities to bring students back on campus? Because you think about dorm fees, etc. You think about the fact, as we've heard from many young people, they want a bricks-and-mortar experience. That's what they're paying for. How much do you think profit is driving some of these decisions? Well, I mean, definitely students want the brick and mortar experience. We we witnessed a class out on the quad the other day and, and the teacher said, you know, the students would rather sit here in 50 degree weather than be on a Zoom call. So I think that really speaks to, you know, the educational experience that you get from being in person. You yeah. know, it's not just classes. It's a whole, you know, sensory experience. Um, certainly, I think Schools are very strapped. Um, You've seen certain schools really put their name on the line a lot more and be willing to kind of issue that blank check to to allow in-person classes. So the University of Illinois is a really good example where they're testing students two to three times a week and really at at great cost. Um, And other schools, you know, really they can't afford it. So I think they've they don't come out and say it so much, but, you know, they've got other solutions in place, which is some of this asymptomatic testing and, you know, really trying to beef up the the social distancing and the masking um, because that's a little bit more affordable. Um, but I think the other thing that people have said to us a lot is why aren't we seeing tuition reimbursements? And even if our school is online, and I think the reality is, you know, online school is also still very costly. You still have a campus to maintain. Mm. You have to invest in software and training. So that's that's a big part of what we're seeing. Yeah. And perhaps profit isn't quite the right word for a lot of these schools, but fi- <laughs> financial sustainability at the very least. You know, it's certainly not cheap to be a college. Like, it's not yeah. <laughs> cheap to give people higher education. That's just a fact. Uh, Alyssa, here in Colorado, our reporters have noticed a bit of a blame game going on. Like, who's really responsible for a spike of cases on campus? Is it yeah. students and their personal responsibility? Is it the colleges and the universities that have perhaps prematurely uh, called for in-person learning. I wonder on your road trip if you've come any closer to finding an answer. (laughs) Uh, Everybody wants to blame somebody else, that's for sure. I mean, we definitely saw at the beginning of the semester a lot of language blaming students. This is based on behavior. This is based on students partying. And then we talk to the students at those universities and they say, hey, wait, you know, the, the administrators, the universities brought us back. And first of all, the blame game, of course, isn't helpful. But yeah, I mean, we can go round and round. And that's the thing, this is so cyclical because there's pros and cons to reopening and opening. There's no right answer in this. Uh, We talked to a a CSU professor yesterday who said, um, there's no real winners in college reopening. There's just people who are losing less, which I think is just such a good way to explain what's happening this fall. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I have the pleasure of welcoming two members of NPR's education team who happen to be in Colorado on a 
COVID-19 campus tour. Uh, Alyssa Nadworny joins us as well as Lauren Magaki. And I am curious about punishments because you worked on a story about this, you know, as doled out by universities. Here, many colleges are threatening suspension or expulsion if students are caught violating COVID guidelines. But I, I understand that experts think that might not be the best course of action. Do I have that right, Lauren? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you're seeing a little bit of carrot and stick, but more stick than carrot in mm. this situation. You know, we've talked to behavior experts who are saying, you know, you need to offer an alternative. If you say don't host these big frat parties, then why not have, you know, beer pong that's socially distanced on the quad or have something that's, you know, enticing to do movie nights on the quad that are distanced. Um, you can't just ask students to, to totally isolate because they've been doing this for six months. They came back to campus because they were so excited to, you know, get out of their parents' basements. And, you know, short of, of providing something else, you're just going to push these behaviors underground. You're going to see, you know, the hidden frat parties with, with no music, you know, and, and things that are harder to detect. Uh, Alyssa, Boulder County took a significant step to stop the massive spread at CU, banning gatherings of 18 to 22-year-olds. And uh, as I said the school shifted to remote learning. Those guidelines are sunsetting, but uh, have you seen steps like that elsewhere where the county, uh, where the school's located, takes a, an enormous step like that? Well, certainly the county and the university relationships have, we've seen a lot of tension in those, kind of who is responsible for an outbreak. Um, but absolutely, across the country, we've seen kind of this two-week lockdown, um, not quite as severe as the the two-person, the limit on two people, yeah. but definitely lockdowns have been really effective. And I think even in Boulder, they're seeing their case numbers go down. So it seems to have worked. I want to say just one thing, which is that we're not seeing the spread happen in classes, and that's across the country. Um, so the the kind of um, the switch to online is a little bit curious, considering that we're not really seeing that transmission happen in class. Where, just to be quite clear, where are the transmissions happening? Well, they're happening a lot off campus, which has been a challenge, especially for campuses that are only testing housing, you know, in the dorms, the folks who live on campus. But it's happening get with gatherings and parties and, of course, communal living. Colleges um, are kind of built with these big big living conditions. We talked to a guy who had 23 roommates. You know, that's that's wow. where it's spreading. Lauren, why don't you leave us with what questions you still want to answer and what your sense is of how, I don't know, the, the, the preceding semesters might shape up. Well, you know, I thought we started out this road trip, you know, 13 schools ago, thinking that we were going to have a clear winner at the end of this. I don't know. Maybe that was naive, but um, <laughs> there's certainly been no clear winners here. And I think we're now looking to spring semester to say, oh, my gosh, so we we maybe are just going to get through this one. How are we going to do this all again in January? You know, what what differences will be in place? Will, will testing be more available? Um, how are we going to continue to do this? Because the solution, the end of this is not in sight anytime soon. Well, welcome to Colorado to both of you, and thanks for being so generous thanks. with your time. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Lauren Magaki and Alyssa Nadworny are on NPR's education team, and their COVID-19 higher ed road trip includes several campuses in Colorado. Colorado Matters continues after the break with the Queen of Denver. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News.
Colorado's Senate seat is one of the most hotly contested in the country. Friday evening at 5 p.m., CPR News, Denver 7, and the Denver Post give you a chance to hear Cory Gardner and John Hickenlooper in debate. What happened with COVID-19, and we have to fight to make sure we get our country back open again and back on track. But we are going to have serious repercussions from the fact that, you know, President Trump poo-pooed this and we were unprepared. I'm Caitlin Kim from CPR News. Listen Friday at 5 p.m. for the U.S. Senate debate. Details at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our next guest came in wearing clothes from another era, a lace top with a maroon and gold corset, a matching skirt, and a hat brimming with flowers and feathers. Oh, and pearls, always pearls. Okay, what explains the fancy getup today? Well, I'm actually dressed as Louise Sneed Hill, who was the leader of Denver's High Society, and she also happens to be the subject of my new book, The Queen of Denver. This is Thornton author Shelby Carr, who sometimes portrays philanthropist and socialite Louise Sneed Hill. Hill's trailblazing, lavish, and sometimes tragic life spanned 1862 to 1955. She saw incredible amounts of change over her lifetime. She was born in the South before she moved out west here to Denver. She went to school in New York City, married into a New York family. So she was also very well-versed in different parts of American culture. And so she sort of combined all of these different things, you know, this leisurely Victorian culture of the South and the puritanical North with this liberal individualism of the West wow. to create these amazing parties where papers would say the champagne was bubbly and no one wanted to leave at midnight. And, of course, Louise would arrive late, naturally, fashionably late. Oh, the, uh, the attention would be on her and her entrance. As it should be and needed to be <laughs> so she could be the Queen of Denver. And it was said that people were sort of waiting um, and holding their breath as if they were waiting for the actual queen herself to arrive. I love the description of the dances at these parties, often animal dances. Yes, the national animal dance craze of the early 20th century. Louise once said that she felt dancing was the most innocent amusement in the entire world. And unfortunately, uh, she was a bit chastised by the public for her affinity for these national animal dances. One dance that she brought to Denver, the turkey trot, yep. was considered so outrageous that it was actually banned by the White House, uh, denounced by President Woodrow Wilson, and the mayor of New York at the time called it um, an orgy. Okay, I didn't realize it was quite that scandalous. What about the worm wiggle? I have no idea what the worm wiggle actually looked like. I okay. cannot find videos <laughs> of that anywhere on YouTube, unfortunately. But if we think about the turkey trot, imagine you and your partner are holding hands. Both of your right foot hops out. Your left foot hops out. And then you hop your feet back together. And that's basically the extent of the turkey trot. Also, I can only imagine what people would think of the dance styles we do today if that was considered to be an orgy at the time. I guess so. She even roller skated Louise Sneed Hill. She did. She was known for roller skating around her ballroom, actually, in her home. And I'd like to think of a sort of gone with the wind, kind of giant skirts roller skating around. And <laughs> uh, she unfortunately broke her wrist one time that she was roller skating. But uh, that didn't stop her from continually having fun. So this mansion that we described briefly on Sherman Street in Denver now houses private law offices. It really is, in many ways, an embodiment of her. How would you describe it? Gorgeous. It's uh -huh. a French Renaissance mansion, three stories high. She wanted it to depict elegance. 
We're talking about uh, Louise Sneed Hill, whom you call the Queen of Denver, and she had what she called her Sacred 36. This was modeled on the 400 of the well-known East Coast socialite Caroline Astor. That's 36 people she would gather around as sort of Denver's elite. Yes. So she threw bridge parties at her home on 10th and Sherman, and she had nine tables of four players each, hence 36 36. folks. She actually did not dub the name Sacred 36. That was a newspaper reporter that started calling them that after he called one of her best friends and asked about the party the night before at Mrs. Hill's mansion. And how was it? And she said, goodness, you'd think we're sacred the way you're asking. Hmm. And he supposedly titled the article the next day, Party at Mrs. Hill's for the Sacred 36. Well, it is it is fascinating the relationship that Louise Hill had with newspapers. Yes. I mean, she sort of puts the Kardashians <laughs> to shame. She, I'm, she knows I'm not how to... a fan of the Kardashians, personally. <laughs> <but> <laughs> and, and you are a fan <laughs> I am of, not. of Louise, though. Yes, uh, but she, she knows really how to work the press to her advantage. What, she does. What did she want from the press? She wanted to push her modern ideas forward. And so she fostered close, intimate relationships with a multitude of newspaper reporters. She also owned a newspaper with her husband, the Denver Republican. And she really just wanted to help further her ideas of making Denver a modern cosmopolitan metropolis. Yeah, let's talk just a bit more about that. I mean, that means that she saw, what, Denver as a cow town upon her arrival? Did she compare it to the, the New Yorks of the world? Well, when she arrived here, Denver was kind of a town powered by the saloon. If you can imagine, in 1890, there were 478 saloons in the city of Denver. Wow. And a neighborhood without a bar, it was considered the hallmark of a good neighborhood if it didn't have a tavern or a saloon in it. So she was probably a bit shocked at the lack of proper decorum. Uh, she was used to a little bit different of a society coming from the South and, and New York City, the East Coast, Memphis, Tennessee. See, Denver was different. Denver was a new city. It wasn't necessarily the Wild West, and she did all she could to define that for folks who had never been here. Mm. She wrote an article for Harper's Bazaar in the 19-teens where she made a point to say, you think of us as this Wild West town where Buffalo roamed the streets. And this is so not the case. We are a cosmopolitan city. And so her goal, I think, in coming here was to continue to elevate Denver and make it realize uh, its dream of, of being a cosmopolitan city and also having other people recognize that on an international scale. She wanted Denver to be relevant. And she had uh, a hand in starting the Denver Country Club, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science with her husband. But I imagine that this was... Uh, an experience that was really for a select few. In other words, you know, it's kind of elitist, don't you think? I think that she intended for it to be all-encompassing at some point. I think in the beginning it had to be those folks who had the money and the power to, the movers and shakers, to really initiate everything to start happening so that all of Denver could benefit from their actions. She was indeed uh, adept at controlling the news, often on the front page and the social pages of Denver's newspapers. And she was a Southern belle, I think it's fair to say. She was. Born during the Civil War. In some ways, her life is bookended by scandal. 
When she was a child, there was a rumor that her father murdered his future second wife's husband. And then there was Louise's own affair. What, what, what did that affair signal about the changing times? I think with her affair, and I'd like to clarify that it was more of a family affair than just simply her lover. This man, he he was so entrenched in the entire family. He was best friends with her husband. He was a mentor to her two sons. Her children and his children spent summers together, visited each other's grandparents. He was actually named a backup executor in her husband's will and a backup guardian of their children. Mm. He was so just integrated yes in the entire family it was a family affair it was not just a love affair for louise i do think that it uh, really showed sort of her modern idea that she wasn't afraid to embrace her sexuality a lot of the times back then you know you married because it was a good situation financially and they wanted to continue their family lines with generations of good breeding perhaps she and crawford weren't in love Perhaps they weren't the best suited in in terms of that. And she found more comfort and adoration for Bulkley Wells. I'm I'm not sure. Talk about the portraits. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) The portraits are a great story. So he was so involved with this family uh, that Louise and Crawford, her husband, decided to hang this portrait of her lover in his full polo attire in the foyer of their Sherman Street mansion next to her husband's head-only smaller portrait. Oh, it really does reflect um, a departure from what was around her and the times. Absolutely. How did that affair end? It didn't end well for, I would say, either of them. Um, Bulkley Wells, her lover, he ended up committing suicide in the 1930s. He had a lot of issues, though. He had gambling problems. He lost a lot of money for some very important people and poor investments. And seeing financial ruin and bankruptcy as his future, he did make a drastic decision and committed suicide. A lot of people throughout history have blamed Louise entirely for this situation. Mm. And that's not fair. If you lose $15 million for some important people, I don't think you can expect to not have your record tarnished a bit. And she, I believe, felt slighted in a few different ways. I imagine this man was the closest person to her after her husband, right? And as soon as her husband passed away, he left town and married someone else. To be left by the two men that you cared about the most and that you just loved completely, these two people that were a part of your life for so long, I can't imagine what she felt. She was probably devastated and so incredibly lonely. Her sons were grown at that point, too, and they were gone. So she was all alone by herself in this home in Denver with, Giant home. with no one. I mean, later in life, she sold the Sherman Street mansion, moves into an apartment at the Brown Palace, yes. where she died in her 90s. I, I found fascinating in your book, The Queen of Denver, about Louise Sneed Hill, the contrast between her and Molly Brown, Margaret Brown. Why do you think that we know who Margaret Brown is and we can name her house? And uh, Louise Sneed Hill, who is so influential in so many ways, is a less well-known figure. I think it's... Maybe she needs a musical. It's surprising to say, well, (laughs) I think Molly Brown is more well-known, A, because she survived the Titanic. Mm -hmm. Louise was not on board the Titanic. She was not considered a heroine of one of the biggest events in history that we still talk about today. I think that's one major reason why we know who Margaret Brown is. 
but we don't really know who Margaret Brown is. Everyone thinks of this woman, Molly, and that's not who she was. If you watch the unsinkable Molly Brown movie or the musical, that's not an accurate portrayal of her either. Yeah, and it I've, certainly doesn't get to her work with juvenile justice. Uh, no, and she had quite a tragic life herself where she experienced so many hardships, but we don't really hear about those either. Mm. We think of her as this heroine on the ship, and then we watch her in this movie where she sings and dances, and that's certainly not the case. And Louise is also portrayed in that movie, though under a different name. Is that right? It is. But you are painting for Louise Hill a fuller picture of who she was, of what drove her. That's my goal. My goal is to bring the lost women of history in general back into the limelight. There's so many women that we know nothing about, or they've been merely a chapter or a footnote of American history, but they had so much influence and power in their own right, and all we ever hear about are their husbands. Thank you so much for being with us, Shelby. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thornton author Shelby Carr's new book is The Queen of Denver, Louise Sneed Hill, and the Emergence of Modern High Society. It's not enough that a candidate is liked. People actually have to vote for them. In close races especially, turnout operations are vital. CPR's Benta Berkland takes us to the politically divided city of Pueblo, where both major parties are trying to galvanize infrequent voters. Colorado has one of the highest rates of voter turnout in the country. But in Pueblo, it's not as high. In 2016, it was about 4% lower. Pueblo is a heavily Latino county with more registered Democrats than Republicans. And while Trump lost Colorado, he narrowly won Pueblo. It was a shock. Shock to those of us living here and a shock to people around the state. Victoria Marquison is the secretary for Pueblo's Democratic Party. I can remember for six months afterwards, I'd see people throughout the state and they'd say, what the hell happened to Pueblo County? Reversing that trend could be critical for Democrats. They hope to flip Colorado's third congressional seat from red to blue. And the party is trying to oust Republican Senator Cory Gardner, who's in a tight race against Democrat John Hickenlooper. Pueblo's voters are crucial to those efforts. These are two people who are Democrats, Mm -hmm. who vote Democratic when they vote. Mm -hmm. But you know what? They don't vote very much. So we're trying to nudge them. So it is a special list. That's a list of people who will be getting personalized letters. Democrats aren't doing as much door-to-door campaigning, so volunteers swing by the party headquarters to get blank postcards to write. They say these handwritten notes can make a difference. Do they have stamps on them? No, no, no. We'll pick them up. But the left hasn't abandoned face-to-face efforts altogether. Volunteers with the Pueblo Latino Democratic Forum Register voters outside of a gas station in town. Did you receive your ballot, ma'am? Oh, you did? You did? All right, so you are receiving them. So the next it's a place they anticipated finding plenty of non-voters. My friend, he tried, he tried to get me last year to, to, to register to vote. That's Eric Stewart. He says he's never voted and never will vote. He doesn't think it'll make a difference in his life. I don't know if it's going to benefit me. I don't even know if my vote even counts. I'm an ex-convict. You know how hard it is to find a job, to do anything? It's, it's very difficult. And a person gets tired of it, or they get depressed. Tanisha Valdez pulled up to the convenience store with four children in the backseat of her car. We have the website, too, but me personally. I've never voted my whole life. Really? And I'm 37 years old. 
So yeah, my sister's like, please T, please this year do it. Valdez says she's never felt like she knows enough about the issues to vote. But this year, her sister convinced her to do it anyway. Honestly, she wants Trump out. So she's like, please, come on, yeah. get out here and vote and, you know, get your say-so out there. <laughs> on the other side, Republicans see a real opportunity to build on their success in Pueblo from 2016. The Trump campaign's victory bus recently stopped in Pueblo. Trump campaign senior advisor John Pence, who's the vice president's nephew, rallied the crowd. The Republican way is the American way. Why is that? What do we believe? Sarah Rosales attended the Trump Get Out the Vote rally with her daughter, holding a Latinos for Trump sign. She says she's been talking to family members. I actually want them to open their eyes because Democrats are not the party they were. They're not. They're, it's just other socialistic, liberal agenda. She says she's especially focused on friends and family who didn't vote in 2016 because they didn't like their choices. We actually got into a real heated uh, discussion not too long ago, and at the end of the day, they're family. We can agree to disagree, and yeah. But Rosales has had some success. She says she convinced her son and daughter-in-law to become Republicans. And especially during the pandemic, this kind of personal effort may be more effective than anything the political parties can do to turn out the vote. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Okay, so Election Day is less than a month away, and History Colorado is going all in on government for all. That's how the museum describes its new exhibition, American Democracy, A Great Leap of Faith, which is in partnership with the Smithsonian. The show is now free every weekend leading up to November 3rd. I recently spoke with Denver artist Adri Norris, whose work is on display, and History Colorado's chief creative officer, Jason Hansen. We started this conversation with the Smithsonian more than three years ago. We looked at the calendar. We said we'd love to bring this exhibit to Denver around the next presidential election. Mm. And we were moving ahead. And then a couple of different things changed our world, including the protests. And as we uh, watch those develop, you know, this exhibit is about how we got to now. Really, all of our work is about how we got to now. And we knew we had to capture history in the making and reflect it in this exhibit. So we started to brainstorm. The team here is uh, really creative. And we layered pieces into this exhibition. So it's really, it's not just an exhibition. It's a full initiative. Uh, So we created a curated art show throughout the museum. We've got new speaker series uh, that is really designed to engage with current events and, and topics of the moment. And we provide space for people to really engage with the moment on their own or with their friends and family and loved ones, those who they are at the museum with. Can you paint a, a scene, a picture of us, uh, for us, rather, of like something you're really excited about that's part of this democracy exhibition? One thing that I'm excited about is right as people come into our building, if, if you're familiar with the History Colorado Center, you know, we have a beautiful uh, large atrium, and we have turned that into something we're calling Unity Square. It's full of art and experiences, things that people can do safely without having to worry that they are you know, putting themselves or their health at risk, but that will help them 
think through some of the topics. So right now, for instance, people will be greeted by uh, an enormous sculpture mm. uh, called We the People. It's by Rianne Corain, who is based right here in Denver. What this is, it's a just enormous set of letters, uh, We the People, stacked on top of each other, uh, reaching up well above all of our heads to the second floor. And we're inviting people to cast their hands in plaster. We've got a, a way you can do that safely without coming into contact with anyone else or reusing anything. And we add those hands to the sculpture so that as time goes by with this exhibition, the letters become filled with uh, the people's hands. I mean, the, the metaphor becomes real and it resolves into this sort of pointillistic collage of hmm. uh, the people. Adri Norris, your contribution is in an art exhibit called Women Behaving Badly. Uh, in your paintings, you highlight heroic women whose place in history was forgotten or intentionally downplayed or buried. I'd love to hear an untold story. Is there one you'd share with us? Yeah. So um, one of the stories that I, I really love is the story of Dolores Huerta. Um, so she's not a Colorado local, but she has passed through here a number of times. She helped to found the United Farm Workers Association with Cesar Chavez, but we only really know his name in association with that group. But she was very much there at the beginning and continues to fight for democracy, for rights. She is spearheading the census right now, hmm. um, you know, things of that nature. But unfortunately, when Cesar Chavez passed, there was a move to actively erase her from the story. And she's, you know, she's a powerhouse of a woman. What was it like to kind of capture her image as an artist? It was very interesting because, you know, um, I did her painting at the beginning of my series in 2016. So it was, you know, before I'd really, it's interesting, I've actually seen her in public, in person, two times now. Um, um, but so she, she the, didn't sit for this, She did not sit for this, no. Uh, in fact, I, I haven't had anyone sit for me just yet. It's a work in progress. Um, you know, many of the people that I've painted are no longer with us. Uh, and so... I just kind of look for images online and, and do my best to to learn about these people and, and tell their story. And maybe go back to those uh, fleeting occasions when you've actually seen her and maybe try to capture that energy. Right, exactly. And so, um, but, you know, the, in reading her story, I got this sense of the sort of um, this power, this uh, strength to her. And so in searching for imagery, I really did my best to, you know, portray that because, you know, often enough when people post their own pictures, it's a smiling one or, you know, something of that nature. But this was like a, a heroic shot, something shot mm. from slightly below where she looked particularly regal. Oh, I love that word regal. There are 28 women who behaved badly, kind of trading cards, blown up like posters, which you designed through the Women's Commission. And, Edra, you noticed when you were researching women's stories that there's kind of a disparity between black women and Latinas and Asians. Can you help us understand that? Yes. So um, I actually got a fellowship through History Colorado and the Women's History Museum to create a piece. Um, it was originally going to be a coloring book um, about women of color in the suffrage movement. So that period between 1848 and 1920. Um, however, when I began my research, I realized that I was able to find tons of African-American women's. They were colored women's clubs all around the country. Uh, that were involved in the suffrage movement. But I was really only able to find one Latin American woman, one Native American woman, one Asian American woman who were involved in the movement at the time. 
And the thing I came to discover was that the reason that there were so few is that their concerns were so incredibly different. Um, Native Americans, uh, as an entire group, didn't have a right to citizenship. They weren't citizens until 1924. Latin American women, if you were Mexican, you had been made a citizen by default due to the uh, Mexican-American War, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Uh, And so there was a lot of battles over land rights and things of that nature. And so suffrage wasn't really a thing. There was also a cultural difference in who had what rights already. And then um, for Asian women, um, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act was very much effect up until about 1938 and uh, similar restrictions for the Japanese. And so, again, fighting for the right to vote was not something you were interested in doing if you didn't even have citizenship. That is Denver artist Adri Norris and History Colorado Chief Creative Officer Jason Hansen. We spoke last month. The American Democracy Exhibit is free on weekends through Election Day. Finally today, an unforgettable moment happened at Fiddler's Green 25 years ago. A surprise storm dropped eight inches of snow. The headliner decided the show must go on and played a 21-song set while engaging the audience in a snowball fight. The band was Van Halen. The group's namesake, guitarist Eddie Van Halen, died this week after a decade-long battle with cancer. He was 65. We leave you today with the number one best guitar solo, according to a poll conducted by Guitar World, 1978's Eruption from Van Halen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Moreland.